0: Welcome to Travel Stories on the Myelinomics Podcast Network. For episode 17, we review our recent annual guys' trip to Rio de Janeiro. Tom, we're just back here from the wonderful southern continent. How do you feel? Are you jet lagged? You're Brazilian. I'm Ooh, Brazilian. I like that.
1: Yes. I, I like I've been, that. I've been saving that all afternoon.
0: <laughs> so just to set the table here, we do an annual guys trip. Last year we did Manila, which was actually, I, I think, was that episode one of the Travel Stories podcast?
1: Is this our like one year anniversary of the podcast or something? It very well might be. Mm. Or at least of the recording.
0: Of the recording. Yes. Or at least of the trip. Of the <laughs> That's trip. That's
1: true. Yep. Yep.
0: And so this year we had a little bit of a thing. I think we talked about it last uh you uh, know previous episode where I had some miles from my father that I had to burn. You found a particular flight down to Sao Paulo and thus the trip just came together.
1: It did. Yeah, I'm glad it did because it was it was pretty nice. I think it was a nice way to spend the weekend.
0: It truly was. I think this trip had a couple of firsts for you, a couple of firsts for me, and I think you know overall we had some fun. So let's dive into it. I think one of your firsts was actually going to, was flying United Polaris. I mean, the product's not been out for, you know, more than 10 years. So, you know, not a huge deal not to get to it. And it's, it's not something that I think anybody would chase, but I think you also had a first time visit to the Polaris lounge too.
1: Yes. Yes. You know, well, you know, you think, you know, for somebody whose closest airport is Dulles airport, you know, home to United Airlines, you know, you think I'd be flying United all the time. And strangely enough, lately I have all these United flights, but I have managed to stay away from United Premium Class for, gosh, it's been like probably, even with the pandemic, it's probably been three to four years since I actually flew in United Premium Class.
0: So we got to Dulles Airport. We were able to get to that Polaris Lounge. I think I shooed you right immediately. Actually, no, we went to the bar first.
1: That's right. We did.
0: And then we made it to the restaurant. The Polaris Lounge, of course, being one of the few lounges in Dulles and one of the few lounges, I think, domestically. There's a few more now than there used to be, but Polaris Lounge, one of the few that has a sit-down restaurant a la carte.
1: Yeah, and it's definitely worth going to. I mean, I think we probably made the mistake of going to the Chef Jeff's uh, Priority Pass restaurant. I think we probably could have skipped it and go straight to the Polaris Lounge, and I thought it was really nice and doubly important because, you know, it turns out, you know, they will not seat you, I think, if you're close to the closing time, which is around 9 p.m., I think, we saw people being shooed away and, and and not getting their actual meal in in the restaurant.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that they closed that early as well. They even closed the door. It, it ended up making it kind of, you know, an interesting experience <laughs> considering there were like probably, you know, four or five other tables and, you know, here all of us, they're pouring wine and everything. We're we're finishing our meals and the doors closed.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think this particular part of the trip kind of prefaces or I guess, you know, foreshadows a certain theme of us being shooed away by restaurant staff trying to close down. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think Polaris was just the, it, it set the tone.
0: It did. It did. <laughs> the first of many. So the Polaris menu, any thoughts on the
1: Polaris menu? I thought it was pretty solid, I mean, I, I mean, it's not quite you know salt and pepper squid from the Qantas first class lounge, but you know, and we did not have any octopus, so I can't comment on the grilled octopus, but they did have a pretty good corn chowder, and desserts were solid. I had a burger, I had the Polaris burger. I thought that was okay, I mean it wasn't anything I'm gonna go out of my way for, but at the same time, it definitely hit the spot.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the thing. And that Polaris Burger is a staple. I certainly have it uh, every so often. I think the third dish was a chicken dish. You know, the real key on this is 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 getting that full meal before you get on board. So if you don't want to eat on the plane, you don't you don't need to.
1: And I would definitely say it's probably better than what was served in business class on board. So I think I think it's it pretty much is consistent that what you're going to get served in Polaris Lounge is you know a la carte dining in the restaurant is probably going to be tastier than whatever you're going to receive later that evening, you know, on board.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's no question. I think they can do a whole lot more on the ground than they can do in the air, despite how much they want to say they can do fancy things in the air. It's, you know, the quality lacks. So as you said, we closed down the Polaris Lounge, that Polaris Lounge, the restaurant and showers close at nine. And then I think they finally kicked us out about 10 o'clock, right?
1: Yeah. They were clearly trying to get everybody out of there before 10.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not great when your flight is, what, at 1035, 1030 or delayed yeah. till 1045 or 11. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So we flew United Polaris on a 767. For those avgeeks uh, among our listenership, I'm sure they know just how exciting it is to get on a 767 nowadays. They are probably the oldest, I think they're the oldest aircraft, or at least wide body, in United's fleet.
1: I don't know. Some of those 777-200s are pretty old too. You know, the Pratt & Whitney ones?
0: You know, that's true. Okay. They
1: were like the launch customer, but you know maybe we're getting a little too AV geek for this episode.
0: The 767s were also among the last to get Polaris. In fact, actually, when we booked this flight, the seat map actually reflected the pre merger Continental 212. Is that the BE Aerospace sort of seat where not everybody has aisle access? So it was yeah, nice. I
1: think to- Seat Guru doesn't even reflect this new seat map. I think uh, I, w- I tried to put it in there and it shows the old United configuration.
0: Yeah. So needless to say, it was nice to see that. You could almost tell that the kind of a weird observation I had, the labs actually looked new. You could almost see, you know, a little bit of that newness there. But when you can get into them. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your experience? What was your feeling on that 767 on the Polaris seat, you know, as a first time Polaris flyer?
1: I was pretty happy with it. You know, I didn't exactly have high expectations, and I wouldn't necessarily say it it's class leading in anything particular. But I will say it's comfortable, and obviously the bedding provided was pretty good. You know, they had the gel pillow, and you know all the you know I think what is it sacks you know blankets and things. Um, those are all fine, and I, I think they I enjoyed them.
0: Yeah, that's the one thing I think. You know, they do well is they give you like two different blankets, they give you two different pillows, and I think that makes up for a lot of ills, so to speak. It
1: does. It does. It also helps to have a really good flight attendant. I I call this flight the tale of two flight attendants.
0: Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah.
1: It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know, (laughs) depending on which aisle you were on.
0: And in this case, I was in I think one K or one L. Because they don't go up to K, and you were in seven uh, A or something yeah, to that effect.
1: I lucked out on the uh, the flight attendant lottery. I, you know, it's it's kind of like this way with a lot of legacy. You know, um, uh, you know, American carriers. You know, you've got these. You can have some real superstars, and I had the superstar in my aisle. You know, she was coming around. She was like filling up ice in my double wall thermos. You know, she was you know coming around with diet coke. She was. S- Spectacular, you know. She just was all about, you know, making sure that I was comfortable, making sure that I felt like I was appreciated as a customer. She came on with around with thank you note. Of course, Trevor was wonderful by by bringing some chocolates for the flight crew. I think that kind of kind of set the stage. But really wonderful, probably one of the best American carrier. I mean, even including Delta. You know, this is of of the three majors. You know, one of the best experiences I had from an American carrier's you know flight crew you know, in terms of how they, you know, were attentive and, and just so appreciative and, and and just doing a great job, really.
0: Yeah, that's really high praise. That's high praise for, you know, any American airline, let alone United. Mm. And yet your flight attendant was fantastic. I practically had to trip mine to get a beverage refill. <laughs> and I don't think he was intentionally not, you know, intentionally lazy. He was, you know, up and down the aisle. He was just struggling.
1: Maybe I if your side was just busier or something. I don't know. Maybe there are more people that were up or something.
0: He just didn't seem like a guy that could take a lot of stress. Okay, maybe. And I think we were just about a full flight, so I it think was, he was, was he was working hard. He was working yeah, hard.
1: The, the flight, you know, even though I don't think it was the, the seat map I didn't think was completely full, even a few days out, right? I mean, so there must have been a ton of either late bookers or you know, upgraders slash non revs.
0: Yeah. I, and that was probably the case. Even looking back at premium economy, that seemed fairly mm-hmm. full too. And the one thing on just, you know, for our listeners on the 767, there are no labs up forward. There are two labs at the end of business class and inevitably the business class folks end up sharing those with the premium economy, even though the flight attendants do make a, a big song and dance of trying to remind the premium economy folks, hey, your labs are behind you.
1: Yeah. I would say that that ended up being a little bit of a problem because I think the density of, of that business class cabin, plus adding on the passengers from premium economy, those labs were pretty well subscribed from a usage perspective, especially toward the end of the flight.
0: Yeah, certainly not an ideal situation. No. So we land in uh, Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo, Brazil being the most notable airport, uh, GRU, the airport code. And you land in Terminal 3. And I think we just sort of hadn't experience. We had, what I would say is we were pretty relaxed about our arrival experience, knowing mm-hmm. that we had to check in for our, our onward flight and knowing that we had a couple of hours to do all that. What was your initial f- feelings? Because obviously I had been to that airport before and I might have biased you against it. You, you so kind of
1: colored, yeah, you colored my expectations. I was braced, you know, I was braced for, you know, I don't know who, where to explain. This is probably like a Vietnam transfer or something or, you know, one of these not wonderful experiences, but it was actually pretty easy breezy.
0: Yeah, I ended up, and I remember going through, you know, T3 w- when it was new, we got our boarding passes. It was, you know, five, 10 minute walk to get to terminal. Is it terminal one or terminal, terminal two, two, term- two? Yeah. And I remember terminal two just as this horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And so getting there and seeing that it had been kind of remodeled in that similar style as terminal three was comforting. It was, you know, I was ready for, you know, two hours of just get me on this plane and out of this, pardon my language, (laughs) hellhole. I mean, that's literally what it was, you know, 10 years ago. And so, yeah, yeah. So pleasantly surprised.
1: And, you know, we visited that Plaza Premium Lounge on the domestic terminal and, well, again, had pretty low expectations. And, you know, one of the things that was negative was there was such a backup of people because, you know, people just don't know how the heck to you know, present credentials apparently in Brazil. Well, and that was the interesting
0: thing because, you know, they had a big sign for visa. And so here we are, we're like, okay, well, you know, how about my CSR is the CSR it's visa infinity. That's what you're saying. And they look at that. They're like, Nope, Nope. Only Brazilian.
1: And you need to have the visa companion app. So they really, and that's part of it, I think, is that they were really only accepting people who had registered in the app. So everyone's like sitting there waiting for app store to download, I guess.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, not to be rejected on the first try, I think you had your MX out. I was fishing out my priority pass. We were sort of of the opinion of we're going to get into this lounge one way or another. How many cards is it going to take?
1: That seems seemed to be, again, a theme at every lounge that we went to. <laughs> we were not sure what credential they were going to accept, but, you know, we had them all. So, and in some cases, even if we had them, they still rejected them.
0: But then we had another credential.
1: That's right. We are well equipped from a lounge entry perspective.
0: Yeah. And that lounge, I thought it was very nice. You said, I think you said it was Plaza Premier or Premium. Plaza I'm Premium, always, I think. Yeah, yeah. Plaza Premium, you know, nice tarmac views. We actually just happened to sit overlooking our gate, not even realizing it in, at the time. And, you know, just in general, a whole lot better experience than I think either of us were expecting just for a domestic transfer. I mean, this lounge had Prosecco, they were making Caprinas, you know, we're talking, this is not your United club. This is not your Admiral's club. This is a much nicer lounge. Maybe to the caliber of, you know, a Turkish or an Air France, I would offer. But I don't know that I saw hot food.
1: You know, surprisingly, I thought all the lounges that we went to in Brazil were all generally pretty good. You know, mind you, our data set isn't huge, but you know, compared to my previous experiences in like Lima and Santiago, especially on the domestic side, I thought it was much better. And I guess maybe you're in a position to maybe talk a little bit about Peru in a future episode, but my past experiences, which are, mind you, probably about four years or five years out of date, when I've been in other domestic parts of airports, whether they be in Lima, Peru, or Santiago, Chile, those lounges in domestic side I mean, they're just, they're basically bus depots.
0: Yeah. Well, now I'm going to, I'm going to keep my expectations managed uh, for yep. Lima. Yep. But yeah, definitely the lounges were far better than I think we normally think of for domestic flights. Absolutely. So flying to, and I'm not going to get this right, it's Santo do,
1: Domingo maybe?
0: Yeah. So SDU is kind of the Reagan National of Rio. It's the airport very much in the city. It's It's actually on a reclaimed island. And so it really looks cool. And you can see pictures of it. You can see it from Sugarloaf and Christ the Redeemer statue. It's a short runway. So it's a little bit of a heavy brake landing. Kind of fun, you know, probably a really fun takeoff, you know, as long as you enjoy that sort of thing. But I think we generally had a fully economy seat, uh, you know, full economy aircraft, nothing exciting at all about it other than the fact that we ended up landing. And I think we were less than 30 minutes away from our hotel, probably even faster than that.
1: Yep. It was nice. It was nice to be so close to Copacabana right there. Yeah. And I think they did have like kind of like a Euro biz kind of situation where they were like blocking middle seats, maybe in the first couple of rows or something. But for such a short flight like that, I, it just doesn't seem like it'd be worth it. And I don't, I don't know what they catered, but I enjoyed my, you know, extraordinarily small my mini snack and, you know, a glass of water with a incredibly thin plastic cup. But anyway.
0: Yeah. And that was LATAM. And there was an option to pay for that. I was cheap. I had wanted to just use my Capital One credit going through Capital One travel portal from my Venturex, and I didn't even use all of that. Although I think in our conversation, you were trying to figure out when we were originally going to need another domestic flight, you were trying to figure out if there was a way to actually buy it from a Brazilian point of sale, because I think I probably paid one or two times the amount that, uh, or two or three times, I should say, of the amount that you'd pay if you did it out of the Brazilian point of sale, which is probably something that you know we probably want to look at sometime in the future.
1: Yep. Uh, Definitely something where I think the people who can buy these tickets with their Brazilian, I guess, equivalent of a social security number, that seems to be a requirement to be able to buy a ticket with a a point of sale in Brazil. And those domestic flights between especially Sao Paulo and Brazil, they were definitely seeming to be a good $20, $30 cheaper on like a $50 ticket. Uh, So that's pretty significant savings. I I mean, uh, mind you, you kind of need a, a, a friendly Brazilian to help you out, but you know, might be something worth looking into if you, if you have, especially happen to be a large party of people.
0: Yeah. And and we do call ourselves travel hackers. So I feel like those sorts of things are always things to, to explore and kind of, you you know, always explore and, and keep in mind. Absolutely. Even if not for Brazil, but, you know, you think about other opportunities. I mean, ITA matrix, for example, lets you look for a point of sale from another country. Whether or well, you not know, you can find Google, an agent to do it. But
1: well, Google Flights, you know, offered up, you know, those cheaper flights based on the Brazilian point of sale. At least when I was doing my searches and I was like, Oh, how do I gain access to this? You know, how do I get this cheaper price? And I was like, Oh, let me make up a fake Brazilian whatever SCA, whatever number it is, and try that. I'm like, nope, that didn't work. Let me kid do I know somebody that maybe lives in Brazil that could do I was I didn't have didn't know anybody in particular to do that. But In any case, I gave up because I, of course, found the actual trip that we, the itinerary that we ended up taking back. But we could talk a little bit about that after we talk about, uh, I guess, what we actually did in Brazil.
0: Yeah. So our first hotel was the JW Marriott Copacabana. I don't know if you noticed this. Mm, I noticed. We record with a camera, just more out of context for our our listeners. And uh, I am wearing a shirt in honor of our Marriott's Day that you've gotten Bonvoid. You got Bonvoid. Just, you know, that kind of fun... Trend that we were sort of looking at when Marriott had released, you know, this new program called Bonvoy. I would offer that we didn't get Bonvoy at the JW Marriott.
1: I don't think we did. I think it was a reasonably nice day.
0: Yeah, pretty much a very city hotel right on Copacabana and closer to Ipanema. You're probably only about a 10, 15 minute walk along Copacabana to get to Ipanema Beach, which is probably the second most well known beach in, in Rio de Janeiro. I think, you know, for other parts of the city, you're probably within a half hour, depending upon the time and traffic.
1: I think as a first time traveler to Brazil and to Rio, it was a good location to get your bearings because, you know, it's in a good location for a lot of the tourist sites that you're you're going to be seeking out. And of course, it's right across the street from Cabana B, So, you know, you can right just, you know, literally hop out here within a few steps of, you know, your feet are in the sand.
0: Yeah, the rooms are fairly nice, a little bit dated. Hotel is an older hotel. They do have a decent lounge, decent lounge offerings, I thought, and a rooftop bar. And pool. we'll talk about the rooftop bar probably at some point in the moment. The one thing that really struck me about the JW, and I think you'd probably agree is, is that the staff really seemed to go out of their way. We noticed a number of different staff members that were getting photos with guests who were leaving that night or the following day. It was
1: almost strange. It was unusual, the amount of customer interaction that we noticed between the staff of the JW and the customers. Yeah. I mean, it was really notable. Very, very obvious. And and in a good way. I mean, like, uh, like I said, I think from the minute we walked in, like when we were checking in, you know, there was another couple that were, you know, I guess right, right next to me that needed to have their keys redone or something, because I guess they were getting a late checkout. And, you know, they were like asking about, oh, yeah, yeah, I was going to play the piano for everybody. But, you know, the piano was locked, uh, you know, and, and he, they were having another side conversation. Of course, kind of a little rude to be doing that right while I'm sitting there waiting for my keys. But, <laughs> but you know, clearly the front desk person and these customers had had, had you know, many interactions and, and had obviously were very friendly on very friendly terms. But that was not the only time in the lounge, in the restaurant. We were constantly seeing people, you know kind of talking with the staff saying oh I'm sorry we got to leave tomorrow you know and doing the usual kind of like oh it's so so sad to leave kind of thing and then but yeah it just it just seemed much uh the, the, you know the occurrence and kind of the degree to which it seemed like there had been connections made between staff and customers was surprising
0: Yeah. And you keyed on a point I missed. The restaurant is where you got breakfast and the Mm -hmm. breakfast was a very nice spread. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, I think you had Eggs Benedict one day. I had kind of grilled cheese and uh, grilled ham and cheese toasted sandwiches, like a Mm -hmm. grilled cheese with ham. They call them toasties. And I found it to be wonderful. They had Prosecco down there. They had a good number of other juices and kind of flavored waters, really just a wonderful spread. You know, you have a nice cappuccino. Have a nice slow. I think the way to his man's heart for
1: breakfast is to having some type of sparkling beverage that has alcohol in it. I think that's the way to his heart. I mean, if you're on vacation, <laughs> if you're on <laughs> vacation, when in Rio,
0: there you go. When in Rio, and then we mentioned the rooftop bar. I think we closed that bar down both nights we were at the JW.
1: I do think we did close down that bar. I think that one night it was notable because I think we closed down the lounge, then we closed down the rooftop bar. That we closed down the lobby bar. And then we went across the street to a beach bar, we closed that down. I would say that was kind of interesting.
0: It was. And probably the hilarity of it all is that I think I was still in bed by 1.30 in the morning.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like That's You'd like think after point. closing think, you know, that many
0: establishments, it would be like a you know, really late night. <laughs>
1: yeah. You'd think in a city like Rio on Copacabana Beach, you know, people – and this was what, Saturday night, wasn't it? It was Saturday night, indeed. I, I, You know, we're not exactly, you know, we weren't partying until like 5 a.m. or something, but I don't know. That was definitely unique. It was. And then we did randomly run into somebody who was on a mileage run, as one does at a bar.
0: Yeah, a United mileage run, no less. Yes. So talk us through, we did something that I don't normally do. I don't know if you do this either, but uh, ended up booking a private tour via via Viator. I don't even remember, I think it was a friend that had just a a coupon code or something that kind of directed me to Viator. But the intent was private guide wanted the, you know, kind of a little bit more luxury experience, but not a full day event. And so we did get that.
1: I've definitely done that kind of tour before. And I find, especially if it's your first time, you know, if you're not doing like maybe like a hop on hop off bus or something just to get, you know, your initial taste of the city, having, you know, somebody who drives you around and kind of really gives you that ability to kind of get your bearings, it's, it's invaluable And the other time when it's really useful, like this one, is we're only there for the weekend. It's not like we were there for a week. So I think compressing some of the sightseeing and really, you know, making use of your time in an extremely efficient manner is worth the money, I think. And I think that's another theme that's going to come up in a minute.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's the thing that I actually want to highlight from Sam's podcast or or Sam and Robert talking from Sam's trip in, in Tokyo. You know, you can either trade time or money. This was definitely a trip where we really did trade money to get a better experience and to you know better be able to leverage all of our time in, in Rio, our limited time, I should say. And so we start the day off, again, had a guide, a separate driver. Having you know a separate guide that's not the driver helps because the car is always there for you. you know what I mean? The, you go with the guide, the car goes someplace. Bruno was wonderful. He was always where we needed him to be when we were back, ready to move on. And then we had our guide that kind of walked us through everything, starting out with Christ the Redeemer.
1: I think it's particularly clutch in those like cities like Rio where there's not a ton of parking, you know? So, you know, I think if we were having to walk blocks away to find a space to to park the car and then be, you know, walk those several blocks to the attraction and then have to walk back, I mean, that's significant time that you're wasting, you know, not really getting any value out of that. And you know, to be able to you know pay extra for a driver to kind of basically go find some and go make themselves scarce while we're touring and then immediately come back to the front entrance of the attraction and drop you off at the front entrance of the attraction is very helpful.
0: Yeah. And the key thing about Christ the Redeemer that we started at, uh, at 8 a.m. And I had wanted to start even earlier, but the tour companies just wouldn't do earlier. Talking with our tour guide, he's like, oh yeah, we do Sunrise. And he's like, I recommend Sunrise because otherwise you can spend hours. And we saw that firsthand, right? So we ended up waiting probably about 30, 40 minutes to get in the ventricular. Is it a
1: ventricular? What are we? I don't know. Doing? It's a funicular yeah, it's a maybe or something. But, you know, I think they just called it a tram. But yeah, say some people would call it a fu- funicular.
0: Yeah, a tram, funicular mm-hmm. to get up to Christ the Redeemer. And then immediately we get out of this train, tram, we'll call it whatever. And he directs us right to an elevator. 30 seconds later, we are an escalator away from Christ the Redeemer. We have saved ourselves easily 10 minutes and probably some exhaustion climbing stairs. And he kind of directs us. He points out a number of sites before we go on that escalator. And then we get up there. He knows exactly the places to have us step to take the photos.
1: He contorts himself, you know, at a weird angle. He's to- literally
0: laying on his back, <laughs> taking these photos. And it literally looks like we are the only ones up there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was some photographic magic. This guy apparently goes up so frequently to the Christ Redeemer that it, on his <laughs> iPhone, you know, Apple has detected his family includes the face of Jesus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know your stuff when the face of the Christ of the Redeemer is one of your family members. <laughs> So we did spend a fair amount of time there, took mm-hmm. the train down. As we mentioned, Bruno it's got it's us- It does
1: take about 20, 30 minutes, you know, I mean, just the train travel time.
0: It does. So they run three different trains. They've got some switchbacks that allow them to run three trains. And uh, as we were waiting, our tour guide kind of motions back to where the elevators are, and uh, which is, I'd say, you know, a couple hundred feet, maybe 300 feet. He says, usually people are waiting all the way back there in order to get- get out of the train and you can wait two hours just to get down from the mountain. Yeah. And, and that was not a condition any of us wanted to be in. And
1: that's so not, That's not my idea of a vacation.
0: Absolutely not. So we get back in the car and this was a little bit of a surprise. When we originally booked it, the information I had gotten was you can do Christ the Redeemer, you can do Sugarloaf, but you're probably not going to be able to do anything else because traffic and time it takes for all this stuff. But our guide recommended that we also do, and is it the Celeron Steps?
1: Yeah, I think the Celeron Steps. Apparently, he was a Chilean artist that started, I guess, decorating his local stairs, I guess, that that kind of connect you know, one part of the neighborhood to the other part of the neighborhood on this hill. And he decorated them in these tiles, these relatively decorative tiles. And then people started bringing in tiles from all over the world, right? We, we saw tiles from pretty much everywhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, domestically, we saw some from the Pacific Northwest, San Francisco. We saw them from... Alaska, Alaska, places in Europe. I think we probably saw one from Australia and Asia. And just this beautiful kind of, you know, just those beautiful kind of, not glass blown, kiln. Ceram- yeah, ceramic tiles. Just a beautiful mix. And this staircase goes on quite some, I mean, there's probably six or 10 flights. You know, you get up there, you're fairly, you're fairly high. I think at the top of the staircase was the Santa Teresa mm-hmm. neighborhood. And yes. we made it almost all that way.
1: Yep. Pretty much. It was at least a hundred meters of Instagrammers.
0: Yeah. And the thing that I liked most though about that is you had to deal with maybe, you know, five flights of Instagrammers, which was really kind of annoying.
1: Yes. All at the very front of the steps, by the way.
0: Yeah. But if you put a little bit of work in, then you're literally just standing there on your own. That's true. And, they and, get, and the, the
1: Instagrammers get tired after the first couple of flights.
0: Yes. Yeah. Get the gram and go.
1: Yeah. They're on a schedule.
0: And so we ended up going, again, probably about 80% of the way. And our guide happened to direct us to just almost a little hole in the wall on the stairs for some caprinas. And they were the best ones that we had the entire, entire trip.
1: For those of you who don't know what that is, that's the National Alcoholic Cocktail of, of Brazil. And I say it's a spiked limeade is what it is.
0: Yeah, and the beauty about this beverage is is they take, you know, like almost like a lime and a half or two limes, depending upon the size of the beverage, and they muddle it. They muddle all that lime juice out. And then they throw in a spoonful or two of sugar, and then they throw in, and I'm not gonna pronounce it right, but Kishasha. I'm gonna try. Yeah, the cachacha, which is their sugar based alcohol, and mix it up, leave all the fruit in, you just get this wonderful, you know, fairly sweet beverage that is just so refreshing in the heat of Rio de
1: Janeiro. And that was probably the best one that we had in Rio de Janeiro—the one on those steps.
0: There is no question; it's literally worth going up. The only problem is you can't have more than one, otherwise you're going to go down those steps far too quickly mm-hmm. and and far too. Uh, better have
1: your uh, better have your Allianz insurance paid up.
0: I like that. Yeah, we use Allianz as well, and thankfully we've never had to use it. But we keep that annual plan because of those types of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the next stop was Sugarloaf. And for those folks that may not know Sugarloaf off the top of your head, if you happen to see the James Bond movie, Moonraker, then you have seen Sugarloaf. The scene where Jaws is stopping a cable car as Bond is on that cable car, that is Sugarloaf. And that is that taller of the two peaks. I made an executive decision there or close to one. Why don't you walk us through it? Because-
1: Well, you know, I was going to make that decision too, eventually. You just got there faster. <laughs> Well, okay. So just just to set this up, this was, I believe, what, Saturday morning? And this was after some days of, I think, some maybe rainy or cloudy weather. So there was definitely a a large number of people looking to go up to these mountains. And just to describe it real quick, you know, it's actually a two-stage kind of thing where you go to the first lower mountain on one of these cable car tram things. And then there's a second cable car tram from that mountain to the taller mountain, which is Sugarloaf itself. And so- We're talking about lines to buy the ticket. We're talking about lines to get in the building. We're talking about lines to enter into the cable car. And rinse and repeat once you get up to each of these different stages, because there's a second, obviously, line to get into a second cable car and then go all the way up. And then let's repeat that on the way down. So you can see that there were, unfortunately, multiple different times where you could queue up. And we were presented by our guide with an option at the very beginning uh, when we bought our ticket, you know, okay, you can, here's the standard ticket. I think it was like 130, 100 and whatever, real, 40 reals. And then here's this other option, which is like 260 reals or something, something along those lines. Significantly more, definitely going to be a multiple, I think, of the standard ticket uh, or close to it. But I think in retrospect, absolutely worth the money.
0: Yeah, there was absolutely no question. I mean, we saved two hours just to get up to buying a ticket. I mean, based on our observation and the guide's experience. Well,
1: they might have also been kind of exaggerating a little bit to make us feel better about a purchase. But well, I do he, also think, I think there's some reasonable, we saved a lot of time. We saved lots and lots of time.
0: We did, we did. And just for perspective, I think what, 100 reals is about $20. So, you know, paying roughly 100, 120 of a premium you know, to, if you figure that you save across all the different lines that you had to do, we probably saved at least an hour, maybe two hours. We also, I think, enjoyed the experience a whole lot more because we didn't have all that time waiting. No. Yeah. So this is a case where, you know, we bought our time back and it seemed like a really good value there.
1: And it was particularly valuable time because, you know, it was the weather was glorious. It was beautiful, very comfortable, very comfortable breeze on both of these mountains cooling us down. And great, and, you know, this is this is that prime daytime daylight weekend, you know, time. This is expensive premium time,
0: and it was great value. So much so that we were able to grab a, a nice relaxing lunch afterwards at a Churrascaria, a Brazilian steakhouse. That I think we ended up having about a three hour lunch with
1: <laughs> it was, some it was amazing, amazing meat. Long lunch, it was, but you know what? It was absolutely worth those three hours, and we bought some of those three hours probably.
0: We did. We did. We're running a little long here. So let's jump to our second hotel. We did one night at the Grand Hyatt Rio in Barra de Tuca. So I
1: actually Googled this because, you know, we, we got different pronunciations. I think it says Bar or it's, you know, spelled Barra, but I think the Portuguese pronunciation is Baja, just kind of like Baja Mexico or something like that. So it's there Baja de Tuca.
0: Baja de Tuca. And this is an area that is supposedly an up-and-coming where people want to be. I think we joked, or our guide joked, that Bolsonaro had a mansion there, Bolsonaro being the prior uh, Brazilian president. Still very, very resort feel and not at all urban. It just felt very desolate there.
1: It felt like another city, right? You know, I mean, we spent all this time in Copacabana and Ipanema, and, you know, you get a certain vibe there. And you go to this other neighborhood, and you're driving through the street on the way there to the hotel, and you're like... Is this still Brazil? Am I in florida now what 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 is this? you know it just looks different and much more modern and you know it just has you know and and maybe some people will not like it because you know it's it's probably a lot more of a sterile, kind of generic you know suburban slash urban feel, but you know obviously this is where I think a lot of the wealthy of Rio de Janeiro are living, and you know definitely a much quieter, more subdued, dare I say more elegant a feeling neighborhood than let's say Copacabana or Ipanema.
0: Yeah. And uh, unfortunately the hotel, while the bones were great, the service was a little bit more
1: challenged. It is funny how it's almost the exact mirror image of the JW.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Where the JW had the soft product, this hotel had the hard product. Great, you know, really resort view or feel the bed was absolutely amazing. The rooms were so comfortable. They were light. They were welcoming, just wonderful. Yet We ended up both globalists. We were going to leave at one o'clock and we had asked whether we could, you know, get that late checkout. And they sort of begrudgingly gave us one o'clock. They're like, Yeah, we can't really give you four. We didn't need that. I got called twice. They tried opening my door. I use the bar when I'm in in my room. And that sort of, I hate to say it, but that left me with a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, just a sort of, you know, lack of refineness there. That's and realized that they were really odd
1: how persistent they were to try to get you out of your room. I didn't experience any of that by the way.
0: <laughs> I guess I was just special, but you know, it's those small little things that just live, leave a little bit of a memory. But I would go back to that hotel. I don't think I'd spend a ton of time there. I th- I think it's still fairly limited and it's so far away from Copacabana and Ipanema that you don't want to stay at the Grand Hyatt. You don't want to make it the if base of your you if,
1: if you're going to be doing tourist stuff in Rio. That definitely is not the place for for that.
0: So we got our last hotel stay in and we headed back to the airport. This time we flew out of gig in a Garulus, if I pronounce it right. Again, we visited some lounges. Again, they impressed us. We found ourselves in the center seat of economy on an award on a business hold award hold ticket.
1: Hold here, hold here, hold please. Trevor Mountcastle was in the middle seat in economy. Let me just in the back of the mind.
0: plane. I think I was Not I now. was row twenty nine on a seven thirty-seven.
1: Yes. yes. So just just wanted to take a moment and just everyone just drink this in for a minute. Okay. You may continue now.
0: <laughs> Record the log.
1: <laughs> Some people might not believe this. You know, they might be like, I need proof. This does not sound true. This is kind of like, this is a conspiracy theory. I've never heard of Trevor Mountcastle sitting in middle seat in coach. But yes, it does happen.
0: So we end up making it to Sao Paulo. Key area I would offer for anybody transiting Sao Paulo. Just go airside or go landside. Do not try to go from Terminal 2 to Terminal 3 and stay there airside. We probably... Yeah, we lost about an hour doing that. Definitely would have been easier just to have gotten, you know, arrived and then gone through in Terminal 3 where Terminal 3 is actually made that way. There's a few lounges. Amex, Centurion, American has a lounge. We didn't go there. LATAM has a lounge. There is a lounge called Espacio... Banco Safra, that used to be the Star Alliance lounge. Any quick thoughts you want to share on those? On well, the just two that that's we did, the lounge
1: it? that we ended up using for Air Canada, which was our carrier that we were flying that day. But it does, even though it's no longer the Star Alliance lounge, it looks like it's it's the lounge for all the Star Alliance carriers anyway. And they do announce, passengers.
0: they do announce, which is comforting considering our flight was delayed. Which actually gets us to both of us our first time flying Air Canada long haul. This case being a seven eight seven nine.
1: Yeah, you know, I was excited about this because, you know, again, I had flown Air Canada a number of times before, but never long haul, never for this 10 hour flight, you know, that's taking us up to Toronto. So, what
0: were your thoughts on? I think it was a Collins Super Diamond seat, which is a reverse herringbone style, and the 7879.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a pretty common seat. I mean, you see it on American, you see it on I don't know how many different other carriers that have this Collins uh, Super Diamond seat. Their version was, I thought, pretty well done overall. I think there were some pluses. I think it definitely had the air cushions, which I thought they did a pretty good job of implementing this. You know, sometimes they do a horrible job with these like air bladders or whatever, and who knows what's going to happen, you know, down the road with these uh, reliability of these seats. But I can tell you, you know, I thought it was reasonably comfortable uh, And having the air cushioning to be able to have some control over your firmness was, was not a negative. My biggest critique of the seat would be not a ton of storage, right? I, I think that was probably the biggest problem that I saw.
0: Yeah. The seat was the storage. The air cushions actually was really comfortable compared to a lot of other seats I've had. Now let's talk about where they did kind of come. They had great promise in that they offer, you know, sort of eat on your own time. Mm -hmm. But then when you finally eat the catering maybe didn't deliver kind of what you were hoping.
1: And, you know, I think this is not unique to us. I was reading some other reviews online and other people had commented the same. I guess this is not a strong suit of Air Canada. They apparently are okay with customers that, that don't particularly get good food. I don't know. Maybe it's because, you know, people don't exactly seek out Canadian cuisine. But in any case, yeah, the, definitely the weak point here. I think I had uh, – I think you, we might have both probably ordered the beef or something like that. I this was not a terribly good use of cow. And again, I really like the fact that, you know, we had already eaten in the lounge. We were not terribly hungry. We went straight to sleep or, well, actually I watched a movie and then went straight to sleep. But, you know, we both, I don't think got our meals until well into the flight, you know, probably past the midpoint of the flight. And, you know, maybe that contributed to some of this, but I don't think so. I think some of this, it's just the nature of their catering is, is not that great.
0: Yeah. And then one other observation we had midway or probably about an hour or two into the flight, they had to reset the IFE. That ended up resetting all seat controls as well, so you could not control your seat, even though that's you wouldn't yeah, they, normally associate it with IFE.
1: Their timing was impeccable. I was just ready to about to recline, and they rebooted all the computers. <laughs> twenty 20 <laughs> I was minutes the later, for minutes, and I dozed off before they finished rebooting. I think I just woke up a few minutes later, and I was like, "Oh, I guess I finished with a reboot. I can actually finally recline my seat."
0: Yeah, twenty minutes later, you you can recline. Any final thoughts connecting in, in Toronto, flying onward to Dulles?
1: I thought it was interesting that you know they have pre-clearance at, at at Toronto, and for those, I think most of you know this, but you know pre-clearance is where you know you actually enter the United States and go through all the customs and passport control, uh, you know, processes while you're still on the ground in the other country that you're in with pre So what was interesting is you didn't have to enter Canada; you could do that international transit and go straight to the U.S. pre-clearance area and, and start to, doing security, and then followed by passport control and customs. I just thought it was interesting that you, that you didn't have to actually enter Canada in order to do that on this international connection.
0: And that was the only way we were going to make this connection.
1: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Because we were worried about that a little bit because we were delayed. So any final thoughts on this trip? I mean, it was great. I think it was a very, I think, efficient use of miles and currency. You know, I think our 52,000, or at least my 52,000 life miles to, to fly from Dulles to Sao Paulo. I think that's a good redemption. I think similarly, you know, the Air Canada um, points that we used, the airplane points that we used to fly back, also relatively good use of airplane points.
0: And the thing that I found is, is you could leave at night and you could arrive in the morning. Like it almost makes for a perfect long weekend or a perfect weekend Mm -hmm. where you want to maximize your time in a destination without having to burn a whole lot of leave. That for me was the reason that I think I see myself going back and probably not just once.
1: You know, another added benefit is, at least for those of us on the East Coast, is, you know, Brazil or, uh, you know, the Rio in particular, and I believe same with Sao Paulo, are only one hour uh, difference. So really the jet lag that you might experience with some of these other international destinations that are out there are pretty limited. So, you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, having these lengthy bouts of jet lag generally. I mean, I know I bounced back pretty quick after getting back here. You know, I I obviously had a relatively light sleep night, you know, on the return because, you know, we only had probably only got about four hours of sleep on that kind of flight. But it was enough to make me productive. I did a full day of work afterwards, so.
0: Yeah, and that's the great thing, in my opinion. If I could land at six in the morning and get a full day in and not be, you know, completely hosed, I'm, I'm all for it. So let's close it out, Tom. Oh,
1: well, you know I mean, or did you want to do your off the cuff guess the fair?
0: We'll hold the guest the affair for next week.
1: All right, guest affair will make a return. Okay, Bond will be back. <laughs> well, that's the show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider becoming a Mylanomics Patreon member and get access to even more in-depth miles, points, and travel content.
0: Until then, we hope your next story is a travel story.